Hello and welcome to the Sanc- uh, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Kellen McPherson, and I'm Mark Dunleben. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a report on the recent state legislative hearing on reducing packaging. Then we have an update on the campaign to free journalist Julian Assange. Later on, Bria Barthel talks about spooky Halloween books for children and young adults. Then Lavender files a story about the youth FX summer film program. And we finish with a segment from our archives about the art of dumpster diving. But first, headlines. Times Union reports that for the second time, the state has asked the owner of a mobile home park on Saratoga Lake to stop harassing and threatening tenants with eviction. The new owner is required to continue to operate the trailer park until 2026. High temperatures in the Capital District will be about 20 degrees above normal Wednesday through Saturday, with temperatures reaching up as high as the mid-70s. The Myrtle trial for the Hebron man accused of shooting a 20-year-old Schuylerville woman who has, who was a passenger in a vehicle that turned around in his driveway has been postponed. The trial was supposed to start on Monday. The Saratoga Springs School District has hired an outside firm to conduct an investigation of coaches of their athletic teams. The board acted after the submission of anonymous reports to the state attorney general and others outlining allegations of abusive physical and mental conduct, though apparently not of a sexual nature. Previous complaints to the school board failed to result in any action. Other parents and former athletes, however, did provide positive reviews of the athletic programs at a recent school board meeting. An Albany man became the city's 17th homicide victim after being shot last week. It was the city's third homicide in three weeks. General Electric says it will spin off its GE Vernova Energy unit uh, into a standalone public company starting the second quarter of 2024. And in breaking national news... Conservative Republican Mike Johnson from Louisiana has been elected Speaker of the House. That's it for headlines. The New York State Legislature on Tuesday held a public hearing on the legislation to promote reduction in packaging. We hear from three speakers of the Clean and Healthy New York, Beyond Plastic and Westchester Alliance for Sustainable Solutions. The New York State Legislature held a hearing on October 24th to discuss a proposed law to reduce the amount of packaging in New York, particularly from plastic. A growing number of countries and states have adopted laws to shift the end-of-life responsibility for material management from municipalities to producers by establishing extended producer responsibility programs. Almost one-third of the waste generated in the U.S. is from plastic and packaging. We hear from Bobby Chase Wilden of Clean and Healthy New York, Judith Ank of Beyond Plastics, and Vanessa Agudelo of the Westchester Alliance for Sustainable Solutions. 
My name is Bobby Wilding. I am the Executive Director for Clean and Healthy. Clean and Healthy's mission is to build a just and healthy world where toxic chemicals are simply unthinkable. And this policy, the Packaging Reduction and Recycling Infrastructure Act, would be an important step in that direction. I just want to flag that we're talking about this as if it's just a waste problem. But this is really a design opportunity. You know, when we enforce and um, require manufacturers and packagers, the people who are actually making the choices about how much stuff we get and how much stuff is required to move things across the supply chain, they're the ones that have the power to design non-toxic, reusable, redu reduced material solutions that protect the planet and protect our health. I believe that the bill that is under discussion today is an important step in that direction. And I just want to flag that whether you look at the waste hierarchy um, that Dave Vitale mentioned earlier, or you look at the more recent framing of circular economy, the solutions that are the most sustainable and most effective are the ones that drive reduction and reuse, including remanufacturing, repair, and things like that. Recycling is lower than that. Uh, energy production is a weird thing that's not actually no beneficial to the environment because it's just creating climate gases. Um, is below that and somehow disposal is, is at the bottom. Without requiring this transition, we allow the petrochemical industry to continue having a pipeline for their toxic products to move from oil and gas rigs to climate change. Discussion of what chemical recycling might be, there's no proven uh, technology for something called chemical recycling that's actually good for the planet. Packaging is increasingly coming from petrochemicals and the chemicals that are contained in these base and these plastics are harmful. But even just looking at the substances that are associated with plastics, the UN found that there are 13,000 chemicals associated with the production of plastics. 7,000 of those uh, have potential uh, harmful effects. 3,200 of those have one or more properties of concern. Clearly, plastic is not a solution. Clearly, non-toxic reuse is the direction that we need to move, and the policy before us today will get us there. I just want to flag that there are solutions um, that are out there, um, and there are entities that are working hard to ensure that the solutions we move to are, in fact, safer. Clean Production Action and the Center for Environmental Health, for example, are creating green screen certifications for materials, and they just released a certification um, specification for food packaging, serviceware, and cookware for reusable um, products, as well as having uh, existing policies around single-use materials that are safer. We urge that solution that the legislature advances has strong source reduction requirements, bans the worst plastics and the worst toxic chemicals, sets non-toxic reuse mandates, and bans false solutions by having a strong definition of recycling. I want you to thank, I'm the president of Beyond Plastics. I served as regional administrator at the EPA during the Obama administration, and before that was deputy secretary for the environment in the New York governor's office. If you are a fiscal conservative, you should love this bill, because right now taxpayers are carrying a very heavy load to deal with a massive amount of excess packaging. The environmental impacts are outlined in my testimony. Government has the ability to deal with problems like this if the legislative body adopts a strong law. Look at fuel efficiency standards for cars. Who wants to spend more money at the pump? 
It was the Clean Air Act that established fuel efficiency standards for cars. Fuel efficiency standards have greatly increased over the years, despite strong opposition from car companies. If you go and buy an appliance, you will notice your new uh, refrigerator or dishwasher, you will save money on your monthly utility bill because the new appliances are more efficient with energy. What this bill does is create environmental standards for packaging with a real emphasis on reduction, not just recycling. This bill before you is commensurate with the problem that we're trying to solve. Other states have done this. Some of the states have made some mistakes. For instance, the California packaging law specifically exempts, quote, single-use materials that present unique challenges in complying. That is a huge loophole. This is not a new approach. Uh, the late Assemblymember Richard Brodsky and Senator Nick Spano introduced the Environmentally Sound Packaging Act in the late 1980s. It's quite similar to the bill before you today. NYPERG published Plague by Packaging in 1990. I helped write this report. It was 33 years ago. <laughs> we have to solve this problem. We, the problem has gotten worse. Plastic production is expected to increase 40% by 2030. We're turning our oceans into a landfill. This is an environmental justice issue with where plastic is being produced. Over 10,000 chemical additives in plastics. Microplastics are being found in our drinking water, our air, our lungs, our blood, breast milk, and the human placenta. Microplastics can only be tackled if you reduce the generation and use of plastics. And unfortunately, plastics recycling has been an abysmal failure. Uh, my name is Vanessa Godello. I'm the organizer with Westchester Alliance for Sustainable Solutions, and I am here in Albany today for the hearing on the Packaging Rejection and Recycling Infrastructure Act. Um, I'm coming from uh, the great little city of Peekskill, which is about two hours south of here on the Hudson River. Um, it's the city that I grew up in. Um, it's also the city that I served as a a council member as for four years formally. Um, so it's a city that I hold dear. Um, and it's also the city that is home to the uh, trash incinerator, Wheel Breeder, uh, where Westchester County, as well as other surrounding counties, um, areas in New York City and Connecticut, uh, ship over their trash to have it disposed of, or um, as we know it, gets burned, um, and then ends up in the air uh, that we breathe. Um, and uh, people don't realize that burning trash is much worse than burning coal in terms of uh, greenhouse gas, gas emissions, dioxins, health impacts, um, and the numbers don't lie. Uh, the city of Peekskill, aside from it being a low-income community, one of the poorest in Westchester County, uh, a black and brown community, but also uh, having this facility has greatly exacerbated health, already poor health conditions. Um, we have some of the highest rates of asthma. Um, in fact, the emergency visits due to asthma are about double of that, the average of Westchester County. Uh, really high rates of people suffering from cardiovascular disease, lung disease, high uh, uh, reproductive issues, uh, low birth babies 
born with low birth weight. So why are you here at the Package and Reduction Act? So we know that we can't close down the trash incinerator tomorrow, but we know that we can greatly impact the materials that are going into this facility. And this bill uh, can make a tangible difference um, in the pollution that is being put into our air. Uh, plastic, uh, we, you know, we're working on getting food scraps out of this facility, but plastics is something that we know end up in this, recy- uh, in, in this uh, uh, trash incinerator. Um, we know that pa- plastic recycling is a lie. Um, so this bill, uh, we, we need our leaders to realize that this bill um, is so important and really sending, uh, setting industry stra- standards um, to ensure that we can reduce the amount of uh, plastic that is in our packaging, ensure that there's no chemicals, or I'm, sh- I'm sorry, toxic, uh, toxics um, in, our, uh, in that packaging as well, um, and ensure that we don't accept chemical recycling um, as an alternative, as a, as a solution, as a way in which plastic ends up in our packaging again. Um, our world is greatly impacted uh, by its dependency on plastic. It's a big crisis that we have that we're seeing in our environment. Um, in peak skill, it's an environmental injustice. This facility is a long-standing environmental injustice. And if New York State is really serious about starting to uh, f- uh, find solutions and get on the road towards uh, repairing these harms, um, then we need to start by passing uh, bills like this that will start to regulate the industry and start to put forth standards that greatly uh, sends a message that we're, we're done with plastic and we're moving towards uh, materials that are much more sustainable for our environment. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So the legislature has been considering this issue in terms of packaging reduction the last couple of sessions. We'll see whether or not they're able to follow through uh, next year. We did do coverage yesterday of the Bottleville hearing. You can check that out at mediasanctuary.org. And we were listening to Bobby Wilden of Clean and Healthy New York, Judith Hank of Beyond Plastics, and Vanessa uh, Gudello of the Westchester Alliance for Sustainable Solutions. But next, uh, Australian journalist Julian Assange of WikiLeaks is being held at a high-security prison in London since 2019 as he has fought against United States extradition efforts. He faces 18 criminal charges, 17 of which allege violations of the Espionage Act. The charges stem from the whistleblower's publication of classified documents about the State Department, Guantanamo Bay, and the United States incursions in Iraq and Afghanistan. We are joined by Virginia Bryant of uh, Assange Defense, who is helping to organize uh, support for, for Mr. Assange here in the Capital District. Um, so, uh, Victoria, what, what is, I'm sorry, Virginia, what are some of the things that are the Assange Defense is working on at the moment locally? Well, they have a really great uh, work page that will put you in touch with all of your representatives and your local press so that you can make your feelings known uh, to the wider public and connect with other people and the government to let them know that we are aware that they are, have been sworn in to protect the Constitution and that the First Amendment, uh, freedom of the press, is part of that, and to encourage them to do the right thing. Um, Julian Assange may be the most heavily awarded journalist of our time, also having been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize for Peace more than 10 times. Not one article from WikiLeaks 
has ever had to be redacted. And contrary to some of the propaganda that is out there, none of his press has ever been responsible for anyone getting hurt. Uh, he's heavily awarded. He's a truth teller. And that's why our government doesn't like him because our government, they worship profit at the expense of everything else. And when you do that, you don't have very much of an attachment to the truth because the truth is connected to the ideals that are the foundation that this country was made on. Now, there's a lot of things that we did wrong. You know, we've committed our own genocides. All right. But it's the higher ideals that this country was founded on that we want to move forward with. I understand there's a letter that um, Congress people, United States senators are being asked to sign on by October 26th. Can you briefly describe what that letter is and has, you know, Gillibrand, Senator Schumer, Congressman Taco, Elise Stefanik, have they signed on to it yet? I don't even know if they're aware of it because I have not been able to find it. Um, this is supposedly a bipartisan bill put forward by uh, Thomas Massey, a Republican from Kentucky, and James McGovern, a Democrat from Massachusetts. Um, and it, they say that they're circulating a letter to their colleagues in the House of Representatives calling on President Biden to end the prosecution of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who is facing possible extradition to the U.S. for publishing classified U.S. military doc documents. It is urgent, and I may be stepping out of line here, to that we encourage our reps to sign this. Um, one thing for sure, this is a doorway to advocate for truth as a central defining principle, the idea of the ideals this country claims. How we as a government can prosecute someone that is not even a U.S. citizen for treason is one of the many legal absurdities surrounding this case. This is an important opportunity to contact those claiming to represent us, letting them know what you think. Senators Kristen Gillibrand at 518-431-0120 and Chuck Schumer, whose voicemail is always full, so he may have to be written to using his email that is on his website, Representative Paul Tonko at number 518-453-0700, and Senator James, I'm not sure about the pronunciation here, Tedico, T-E-D-I-C-O, Tedico's office at 518-885-1829. Um, the letter is open for signing until Thursday, October 26th at 4 o'clock. The U.S. Capitol switchboard operator number is 202-224-3121. Emails for these may also be accessed on their websites. Now, I want to read this again at the very end of this, so to be sure that people get this information, okay? Now, you mentioned James Tedesco. I believe he's a state senator. He's not a United States senator. Uh, Elise Stefanik is the uh, United States congressman uh, from the ceiling. Kaylin, did you have a question you'd like to ask? I was just going to say uh, I heard um, 
there's a banner at the at Burdette, and I was going to ask, um, you know, what's the story behind that and the purpose behind that? This is part of a larger initiative put forward by Assange Defense. It's not only national, it's international. And um, these banners, which are roughly four by 20 feet long, uh, were purchased by one of the founders of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. <laughs> and uh, the first banner drop was on Julian Assange's birthday. And we're going to be continuing to do this. Hopefully we don't have to continue to do this for much longer because this egregious violation of, of law will not continue. But we're doing this particular banner drop in conjunction with the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese visit to Washington this week, which ends tomorrow. October 26th. How, how are we doing for time? Do I have, you know, time? I have about two, two minutes left. I'm going to ask you a two-part question to, to finish up. Um, well, there was one is, what is the role of the Australian government? And, you know, because he is an Australian citizen, how that's been playing out in a relationship with the United States government. And if people do want to express their opinion one way or the other, uh, very quickly, how can they do so in two well, minutes? Well, again, I'm going to be reading these phone numbers and names out at the end of our conversation. But there are a couple of other things I'd like to interject before that. 90 seconds. 90 seconds. A quote from Assange. If lies can generate war, truth can make peace. 90 seconds. That's not enough time. This is, this is interwoven with so many other issues that have to do with the arms dealers running everything and you know, most people are good-hearted and want peace, but you would never know it from the way our government handles things. This visit, I have to mention the numbers. On this visit with Prime Minister Albanese and the president, he has been sold a 300 and something billion dollar arms deal in the form of nuclear submarines to for security, it's not for security. Oh, and to make sure that China doesn't do blah, blah, blah. This is ridiculous. This Don't is a violation. Okay, one other thing. And Gates, Microsoft, they have donated, how many billion? $5 billion in the next two years for internet protection, which basically means, oh Jesus, okay, uh, sorry. Internet protection, but but it's not. It's it's spying and it's 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 censorship. That's what okay. it is. So if people yeah. do want to contact their legislators, they can look up their numbers for Senator Schumer, Senator Gillibrand, Congressman Paul Tonko, and uh, Congressperson uh, Elaine Stefanik, and that is the Assange Defense. We want to thank uh, Virginia Bryan for joining us today, and for those of you just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunley. And I'm Kale McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLL.
LP 92.7 FM Troy, WOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, neighbor, somebody you meet at the local bus stop. You can find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Moving on to our third segment, just in time for Halloween. Bria Barthel talks about new spooky books with Carol Roberts, head of Young People's Services at Troy Public Library. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, back once again to hear some picks of children's and young adults' books from Carol Roberts, Young People's Services Librarian at Troy Public Library. Carol, welcome back. Hi there, Bria. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. And what's your first book? The first book I want to talk about is called The Ghosts of Rose Hill. This is a young adult book, and it's by R.M. Romero, who is a Latina author, and this does happen to be Hispanic Heritage Month, and um, Halloween is also coming, so I have a wonderful ghost story, so um, I can check both those boxes. (laughs) This is about a 16-year-old Jewish Latina named Alana, and she's a violin musician. She's from Miami. But she's been slacking, so her parents decide to send her to Prague to live with her aunt for a while. And while she's there, she discovers a nearby abandoned Jewish cemetery. And as she explores, she learns the history. And she happens to fall in love with the ghost of a 16-year-old boy, whose name is Ben, who also she found in the cemetery. I think I mentioned that she was Jewish, and so as she's exploring the cemetery with this boy, she learns a lot about the Jewish history and culture, and it turns out that this boy, Ben, well, they fall in love, and his destiny is wrapped up along with another figure in the graveyard who is a man who has no shadow, who is, in fact, a monster, and she has to choose between her desire to be with this boy, Ben, or to do what is right. It's told in verse, and it is just a work of art. I'd like to read a little bit of it. And the monster's name is Wasserman. Wasserman's office is so mundane that it makes me dizzy. The room is all cherry wood and softly glowing lamps, walls of books on poetry, astronomy, history, press in on us, making the space feel like a set of lungs contracting. Wasserman throws himself into the armchair behind his shipwreck of a desk. There's so much jetsam splashed across it, I don't know where to begin looking for the teapot he keeps the souls of the dead inside. But it must be here somewhere. Wasserman opens a book at random, the pages rippling like waves. As the only living child here, you'll have special responsibilities, he declares, like a father or a general. But I imagine you'll love being an older sister. Being an only child is so lonely. I should know. I was one myself. My smile is vanilla sweet. I won't have to be lonely now. It's like in Peter Pan. I'm Wendy Darling. Shadows collect in the fine lines around Wasserman's mouth. But none dare touch him. They, too, must be wary of his appetite. Oh, my. I'm still thinking about that collection of 
ashes in teapots. I have a friend who does teas every now and again, so I think I'll have to check out the teapots before we make tea. Yes, well, I don't know if they're ashes, but what form the souls take, I guess you'll have to read to find out. Oh, that's right. It's the souls that are kept in teapots. And what's next? Next, I have a lighthearted book called The Story of Gumlock the Wizard, and this is written by Adam Rex and illustrated by him. This is a story of a bungling wizard, and it's told by a cantankerous crow named Helvetica, and Gumlock wants to be chosen as harvest hero for the town's yearly festival, but meanwhile, the citizens have been descending upon him with all kinds of requests and expectations without so much as a thank you. And this book has all the elements of a fun fantasy. There's a haunted forest, there's ghosts, there's talking animals, and a fairy. And the monochromatic pencil drawings really do move the story along, um, but it feels more like a picture book. I can maybe describe some of the illustrations. There's a naughty prince in the story, too. I say naughty. He's really more of a fool. But the crow, the crow's character is... Um, he's kind of got a biting wit, and it's very humorous. There's a lot of, lot of comedy in this book. What reading group would you say this is for, or reading level? I would say the ages 7 to 10, but it's a fun fantasy, and it's a great early chapter book for young children, somewhere you know between readers and chapter books, so it's kind of bridging the gap between pictures and having primarily just text. It'd be a good transition book, too, for that reason. And also, the drawings are incredibly lovely. The page she just opened to is a two-page spread, very dark forest with the bird walking in between. Lightning flashed and thunder crashed. Very cool. That was the story of Gumluck, G-U-M-L-U-C-K, The Wizard. And the next book I have is called See the Ghost, and this is three very short stories. This is for, I would say, preschool up through second grade, and this uh, is an award-winning series, and it's a spoof on early readers. This book is funny and comical, and it it appears almost like a, a graphic novel, and it also has speech bubbles, which, like in all comics, um, you know, they provide clues to the vocabulary. And there's also invisible characters who are interactive with the reader. And it also has a ghost and a fairy. But it's a different sort of early reader because it's also so much like a comic. For example, there's a sentence that says, see the wind blow the words, and the words themselves are falling off the page and onto the next. And the word balloon for that is a giant font of whoosh. Yeah. And uh, you have images of the dog. There's a dog and a cat. And the dog, at one point, he's looking. see if I can find it here. But he's looking at the reader like, what gives? What's going on? And he's been tumbled again, um, I believe, by the wind and is wondering just what's going on. Okay, and that book again is See the Ghost. It has a dog and cat on the cover. The dog is saying, I don't see anything. And the cat is saying, neither do I. The subtitle is Three Stories About Things You Cannot See. Great. And then the final book. 
final book is called The Bellwood Game, and this is a perfect middle school book, and it takes place on Halloween, and it has a legend that in the haunted forest, which is near the school, the town school, there lurks a ghost, and on Halloween night, the Bellwoods game takes place. Kids must run through the forest and ring a bell, and if they don't, the specter is free to roam. And if it touches you, you must offer it a gift for safe passage out of the forest. And if you don't bring an offering, it will take something from you. And rumor has it, it will be something. It could even be your tongue or a body part. Um, But if you ring the bell, it is banished for a year and must grant a wish. And 40 years ago, a young girl named Abigail was chased into the woods on Halloween night by a group of schoolyard bullies, and she disappeared. And her ghost is said to haunt the woods ever since. So then it switches to present day, and another girl named Bailey, who is also feeling alienated, finds herself running through the woods on Halloween night, though she chose to do this um, in order that she might win the game and gain the approval of her friends. And she discovers that there are more frightening things in the woods than the ghost of the other girl. And the illustrations are done in grayscale, um, which pairs nicely with the theme. It's got all, uh, all, things, all things spooky, and it's got a very strong autumnal feel to it. This would be a great book to read, um, maybe light some candles. And I think you said the reading level, but if you could repeat that. Yeah, it's middle school, so I would say um, even ages nine, but I would say nine to 13. Great. That was Carol Roberts, Young People's Services Librarian at Troy Public Library, talking about Ghosts of Rose Hill, the story of Gumluck the Wizard, See the Ghost, and the Bellwoods Game. Thanks a lot, Carol. Thank you, Bria. For more details, visit thetroylibrary.org or stop by the main branch at 100 Second Street in Troy. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So some interesting readings to make for that special Halloween uh, this year. Uh, it was Bria Barthel, and she does often do uh, segments from local uh, libraries, particularly in the uh, Troy Landsberg area. And you can check out her previous segments by going to uh, mediacentury.org and using the search button. Towards the end of the 2023 summer season, Lavender spoke with Daisia Hiller and Camilla Dobbs, the lead educators at YouthFX and their YouthFX summer film program. Hello, I'm Lavender, reporting for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm here with Daisia and Camille from YouthFX. Thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you for having us. Awesome. So for those who don't know, just can you just start out with a quick summary of what is YouthFX? Yeah, so um, YouthFX is a non-for-profit organization that caters to students in the Capital District and uses digital media to uplift and empower them. Awesome. And where is it located? YouthFX is located in Albany. It's um, located in the South End on uh, Warren Street. Cool. And so what are your ro- roles within the organization? So I am one of the lead educators. My role at YouthFX is to 
curate the programs that happen both during the school year and the summer, and then also to help facilitate those programs. I am also a educator at UTFX. Uh, me and Camille work side by side very closely. I uh, We also work together in creating programs, um, facilitating them. Um, I'm also a digital media educator. So I teach the youth, I engage with them regarding technical aspects of digital media, um, as long as well as cinematography angles, just really getting them comfortable behind the camera as well. Nice. I understand that your 2023 summer program recently came to a close. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. So our summer program is one of our more busier times during the year. It is a six week intensive digital media program where the students are taken through various different technical workshops and both creative workshops in hopes of making their own short film. And that definitely was the process this summer. We had about 18 students, which is actually one of our bigger groups. A lot of our students were actually this year a lot younger and new and actually new to the program. And um, they were taken through all these different workshops that were needed to make you know, a short film. So they were taken through script writing classes and acting workshops, um, cinematography workshops, sound workshops, you know, all those different things. But I think what was really key and amazing to me is that in this process of being creative, the way they were able to bond and to really make new friends throughout this process of making movies. Very cool. Um, you said you that most of the students this summer were on the younger side? Yes. So what is the what is the age group that the program is for? So the age range for most of our programs is 14 to 18. And this summer we saw a lot more students that were like 14. Um, we had a few students that were actually that that were in middle school in eighth grade that graduated and were moving on to, you know, their freshman year. So we had a, a lot more younger students that were in the space and a lot more students that were new to the program. Um, there's been times where we, we've had returning students, which we saw this year, but not as much. It was, I would say 80% of the group were all new incoming students. And it's nice because they have a new, fresh perspective on the program, on what they want to learn. It also, as an educator, you know, it also allows you to make things new and fresh and also to even if there are like workshops or presentations that you've done before, how do you add like a new light or spin it around for someone that's newer in the program? So that was really fun and interesting. Cool. So so students can come back uh, like they can do the program multiple summers in a row. Yes. I myself, I went through, through the program. So I started the program when I was about 14, like 14, 15 years old. And then I aged out of the program after I hit 18. And then I became an intern through the program. And now I'm teaching full time with Youth of X. But yeah, we've, we've, we have typically seen a lot of students, you know, they might start their first year and then they'll keep coming back until they age out of the program. And sometimes we do have other programs that are for a different demographic as far as like age. Like we had another program that uh, recently wrapped up, I want to say um, earlier this year, which was called Arts to Work. Those were fellows that were in their 20s. So there are sometimes there are opportunities for, you know, older students to come and also learn. Cool. So what did the students learn over the summer and did they produce anything that we can look at? Yeah. So over the summer, over the course of the six weeks, um, not only do we establish very strong community, after we complete our community building, we start to teach the students about how to create scripts, how to write stories, um, we even had amazing acting workshops as well. We taught them camera operations, how to edit, 
uh, we do these activities such as secret creations and um, another one called the five hour film project where we have the students, they have five hours to create a film and edit it. So we wow. give them opportunities to get their hands. Yeah, it, it seems really intense, but we don't do any dialogue. So it's just more about the importance of telling a story and how dialogue isn't always needed to tell a story. So we give them challenges that also allow them to not only work with each other and, you know, tell stories, but also get their hands on equipment. Because um, we do have a lot of students who are super interested in cinematography and editing. So these programs, these activities allow them to kind of get their hands dirty and, you know, get involved into that. So they learn all the aspects of creating a film, creating a story, all the way from creating, finding out locations, costume designing, set designing, to writing a script, to acting, to table reads, to everything that is involved in creating a story. They are, we make sure that they all have experience in doing after they leave the program. So um, that kind of all builds them up into ultimately uh, dividing into groups and creating a short film. So the groups create, they pitch story ideas to everybody, um, stories that they feel inclined to tell. And then um, they make a decision on who, well, what stories are told. And then ultimately all of the, the workshops, the activities, everything that we've been teaching for the past five weeks leads up to a week of filming towards the end of the summer. We created and finished filming two films this summer that were directed, acted, uh, going to be edited and filmed by students. So then we spend fall and winter editing with the students. They come in during their free time. I mean, we edit with them the films that they created to ultimately be showcased at our showcase um, in springtime. We have a showcase every spring. We've been having it at Spectrum Theaters and it allows the youth to be celebrated and appreciated for all their hard work and be able to see their film on the big screen, which is, it seems so far away from them, but we like to ensure that anything is possible. And YouthFX is a place where being in a, in a place where there's not many places where film will youth have the opportunity to get their hands on like equipment and cameras and be trusted with these tools and have freedom to create these tools and these projects. So we love to be able to show their work on the screen to let them know that they are appreciated and that, that their hard work is always seen and their passion and admiration is always shown as well. That's awesome. I'm I'm looking forward to that showcase in the spring and I'll definitely be following up with you guys uh, for more information on that later this year. I'm just like browsing the website here looking at the summer program page and I notice there's mention of a little stipend for the students so it seems like it's also an opportunity for them to earn a little bit of money yeah we the the six weeks program it's it's a lot of work that they have to do so we like to recognize and let them know that we see their, their hard work and um we appreciate their hard work so the students are paid we give them two stipends in the summer because you know it is work you know although they're having a great time we do recognize that they are putting a lot of time and energy into their craft and i think as artists, you know, from like one artist to the next, like you should be being paid for, for your artistry, for your talent, because your time, your time is money. So that's something that we teach them, you know, earlier on as far as right. like, you know, their artistry and as far as like being punctual, like there's so many skills that they learn outside of just creating a film because there's so much work that goes into making that film that can also easily be taken out of that and be and you can put that in other situations and other aspects of their life so there's a lot you see a lot of growth i would say honestly in a role such as um mine and deja's you know we see these kids really evolve over just the course of one summer but then when you expand it even further and you have 
more than just one summer, but you have a couple summers with the student, you really, yeah. you really see them change. We've seen students that have came to the program at the age of like 14, 13. And then once, you know, they're 18 and they're going off to, to college, they know who they are. We've had students that, you know, were kind of feeling lost and decided like, I want to go to school for art and have felt, have found themselves in that aspect of their life. So you really get to see and build relationships with these students that you work with. And you, you, honestly get to help mentor them mm-hmm. not just in their artistry but in life awesome all right in the last like minute or two here uh you touched on this a little bit uh what other programs do you have that outside of the summer program if students want to get involved now that the summer is ending and and where can people find out more so we teach during the school year as well we run fall programming as well as programming in the winter which I think Deja was mentioning earlier. So in the fall, we have a few um, programs that we teach. I teach the empowered actor. So my roots are acting. So that's something I'm really, really big on teaching. Um, And that was a lot of my role during the summer as well as um, was to really help design and mold the acting portion of the summer program. So during the school year, I continue and I teach an acting series where the students start off learning monologues and the fundamental techniques and skills. And also this year, I'm really big on helping them build their portfolio. So they're going to learn how to, you know, build their resume, have headshots, because a lot of our students, some of them might do it more as you know, for fun or as a hobby, but we also have a good amount of students that are also hoping to do this professionally. I want to help them have the best foot forward so they can do that. That is one of the programs that we're going to be running this fall is The Empowered Actor, which is an acting series. And then we also have a program by the name of the History Reclamation Project, which is a program that uh, the whole purpose is to reclaim the history in Albany that is untold. And there's about, I want to say like 10 students that are selected for that program. And throughout this process, you know, they're, they're researching, they're looking up archival footage, they're interviewing the elders in the community. We're going to also, Deja and I, I'm really excited for a program that we're going to be teaching together, which is a music video program. So we'll be having students come in and we're going to be just reviewing music videos learning the ins and outs of working a camera, of filmmaking, and then ultimately is what we're hoping is collaborating with fellow artists in the capital region and having youth create music videos for them. That way it's able for them to not only actually create a music video, but for an artist in the capital region to have a music video produced and created as well. So it's kind of just like an opportunity for many mouths to be fed and feel full because so many people are collaborating and working together to create something. I really, really appreciate you both being here and talking about Youth FX. And thank you for all that you're doing. Of course. Thank you for having us, Lavender. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. I think the one last thing that I forgot to mention is that um, just for more information about our programs and events, because we do host a lot of events for the community, um, people can find us at Youth FX Film on Instagram and Youth Effects on Facebook. And then they can look up our website, youthfx.org. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you so much. Have a great day. And that was Lavender with uh, Dacia Hiller and Camille Dobbs talking about Youth FX, which empowers young people ages 10 to 25 by teaching them the technical and creative aspects of digital filmmaking and media production. Uh, And I'll I'll note that our live segment today was part of our our Peace Bucket. A couple of events we hope to be covering uh, in the near term for our Peace Bucket. Uh, Two upcoming rallies for for Palestine. Albany Medical Students is Friday, October 27th at 4 p.m. in West Capitol Park. Let your voices be heard. 
and then a bunch of groups uh, in Troy on Monday, October 30th at 5 p.m. at the uh, Troy Riverfront Park, followed by a very brief march. We go into our archives to hear a conversation between Alexis Goldsmith and Francis Magai. Francis tells Alexis about the art of dumpster diving and how it helps the climate. This is HMM correspondent Alexis Goldsmith, and my guest today is Francis Magai, who is going to talk to us about his interesting hobby that also, I would say, kind of functions as a recycling That's uh, fair. service. Um, Francis, tell us what you're into. Um, so, uh, I am a dumpster diver, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I'm a proud one. I, uh, I've been supporting my family for a long time, and lowering our grocery bill and the carbon footprint of our neighborhood. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm quite passionate about dumpster diving, um, and I really enjoy, um, the thrill of getting food from the trash. So it's really interesting that you say supporting your family on this because it sounds like scrounging, but it tell is. us of the, the kind of stuff that you find in the dumpster. Yeah. Um, so in terms of my all time greatest hits, um, I once found a, uh, an entire box of, uh, you know, those pre-filled, uh, ice cream cones with a chunk of uh, chocolate at the bottom, mm-hmm. whatever they're called. I found a box of 90 of those in the trash. I took those home. Were they melted? Just a little bit, but it didn't matter that much. <laughs> but my uh, recent favorite is Trader Joe's, and I always seem to find almond butter. Every time I've gone, I've gotten one thing of almond butter, and almost always house plants. Unopened? Yeah, unopened almond butter, um, and often flowers. Uh, and then... As well, I usually get a couple of things of yogurt that have like a slightly punctured top, but they're still totally good. Um, and just a mishmash of like little tons of veggies that like might have a little uh, rot on one corner. Let's see, last time I went, I got more than five pounds of ready to eat frozen meals, including linguine with pesto and tomatoes, uh, butternut, mac and cheese. Like a roasted chicken in uh, rosemary sauce. Yeah, that's just a few of the things I've gotten. The statistic has been around for a long time that 40% of food in America is thrown away. What got you started with dumpster diving for groceries? (laughs) Honestly, it's kind of a lineage thing. My dad is a longtime trash picker. And for my 10th birthday, I asked to be brought into this uh, family tradition. And so he, uh, he took me to the local Save-A-Lot dumpster and told me the code of ethics for a dumpster diver, which is um, uh, be outgoing. It just uh, covers your back uh, in case, uh, you know, anybody finds you. And uh, it can be somewhat sketchy, so it's always nice to, like, ask how people are doing as they pass you by. Also, make the environment just a little bit better every time you dumpster dive. So I always try to pick up a few pieces of trash and throw them in when I go and dumpster dive. Wow, I had no idea that there was a code of ethics. At least in my family, yeah. And about how often do you go? Uh, Now that I've moved into my new house in South Troy, it's been every day at the stores around the corner. 
because it's in between the bus stop and my house. So have you been entirely filling your fridge with dumpster diving? Have you had to buy groceries at all? I have not had to buy groceries. I've been living in my own apartment with some roommates who also cook, and so that provides some of my food. But I've also been providing a lot of food for them. It's been almost three weeks now, and I've not purchased anything, really. Have you run into any trouble doing this? Have you been caught by anybody? Yeah, I have been caught. I uh, Actually, the last time I went to Trader Joe's, I was caught. Extraordinarily friendly guy. Um, he wasn't trying to intimidate me or anything. He was uh, verging on the apologetic and just was telling me that, you know, potentially there could be some dangers with the food being unrefrigerated and that it's a liability thing for them, so they can't really have me doing it. He also tipped me off, oddly enough, to the fact that there was even more food coming to the dumpster very soon. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, so this, this food seems good, you know, like, look at the expiration date, it's, it's fine. And he said, well, you know, sometimes it's not good by the time it gets out here. For instance, we have a cooler that's down right now, and we're throwing it all out. And I went in the store to shop, and I did see that they were basically unloading hundreds of tubs of guacamole and hummus and bringing them out back. Unluckily, the person who was driving me had to jet, and then I couldn't get another ride out there that night. And by the time I got back the next day, uh, the trash had been taken out. Um, this is another important, inf- piece, of important piece of information. Uh, if you want to go dumpster diving at Trader Joe's, Thursday night seems like a really great time because I think sometime around late Thursday night, early Friday morning is when the trash gets taken out. So you have a lot to like peruse through. And even when I went back and there was only one bag in there, I did find 15 pounds of chicken. Uh, and I'm usually very, very careful about meat. I almost never eat meat from the trash, but this was sealed. It was cold and it hadn't expired. It was sealed in its own trash bag, not touching anything particularly gross. So, What uh, do your friends think about this hobby? You know, I think a lot of them admire it in a detached way. Um, <laughs> a lot of them think it's admirable. I'd say a lot of the people I'm closest with think it's neat to the point where they'd like to come with me. And uh, they definitely uh, eat the food. But, you know, um, maybe about half of my friends or maybe 30% or so, I get the sense that they're a little bit grossed out about it. So I don't really go into detail. Have you gotten anybody interested enough to come with you? Yeah. In fact, uh, now that I'm out on my own and um, don't have as ready access to my parents' cars... I've been finding people to drive me, and I wasn't actually, I wasn't asking. People came to ask me if I'd give them a tour of a dumpster, and I was happy to because I needed food for my house. If people ever do want me to show them how to do this whole dumpster foraging thing, I'm more than happy to be their guide. It just seems incredible that so much quality food winds up in a dumpster. I mean, I know we hear this statistic, but like when you think about it in practice, that this food is perfectly good. This is like one small piece of the waste stream, but how do you see it fitting into the larger picture? Mm, Great question. You know, I think for me, it's just like a way to feed myself cheaply. It's also just thrilling and um i think you know i've probably amazed like easily 50 to 100 people by the tales of the the trash that the food that i get out of the trash um and how i sustain myself that way largely um and um i think that that kind of has a ripple effect in itself but 
I'm well aware that just dumpster diving doesn't put a big dent into the kind of wasteful food system that we have. I really hope to see supermarkets do things like marking down uh, food before it expires, before they uh, feel inclined to throw it in the trash. Um, I also highly recommend places uh, donate whatever food they can't sell but is still edible to a food bank or a food pantry. Uh, I know places do that, but it needs to be done more. And I think that we really just need to move away from a system where grocery stores are so stocked with overflowing shelves of perfect produce and that's like something that we tend to expect from a grocery store i think that that kind of system actually leads to food waste because to have so much fresh food always available they have to order more than they need so that the shelves remain somewhat full and and in terms of legislation i know some countries in europe have made it illegal to throw out edible food. I don't know the specifics of how that works, but I think that that's something that we should look towards doing in our country. What about the piece where dumpster diving is looked down upon or scrounging is looked down upon? What about that piece of our culture? Well, look at it. I mean, I think that we're naturally uh, scavengers until we got all, you know, I got all these high notions about being, like, civilized and stuff. We were, like, hunter-gatherers, you know, our scavengers. Like, we used to live like big raccoons, right? I mean, we didn't have as much trash to dig through as raccoons do these days. But uh, back in the day, we were just eating what we could get. For me, it's just part of being human. And I think especially in our hyper-wasteful consumer society, there's just so much good stuff for the picking that... We should really destigmatize the practice of um, finding usable items in people's um, people's trash for for various reasons. Francis, thank you so much for joining us today. This has definitely been interesting. <laughs> no problem. And that was Alexis Goldsmith with uh, Francis uh, McGuy. I'll mention that Francis's younger brother. Uh, used to be one of the early engineers here at the Hudson Mohawk magazine. And the last time I saw Francis a while back, he was uh, working over at the Radix uh, Ecological Sustainability Center over there in the south end of Albany. But to hear other stories from our our archives, just go to our website, mediasanctuary.org. That's our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk magazine. I'm Keelan McPherson. And I'm Mark Dunley, engineer tonight. It was Joan Eatson. Thank you very much, Joan. And we also want to thank all, all our other volunteers who made today's episode possible. Uh, segment producers, Bria Bethel, Lavender, Alexis Goldsmith, and your co-hosts, Keelan McPherson and Mark Dunley. We want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and at uh Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email to HMM at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand and on, on our website. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.